He said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I played that in my car and my kids, when they've heard it, were scared to death. And now they want to hear it all the time because it's the scariest music that they've ever heard. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you what, let me make a few calls. We're going to do this together. Hi, I'm Cosmo Calloway. And I'm Eliana Stanford, and you're listening to Full Steam Ahead. Full Steam Ahead is a student-led podcast where we talk with thought leaders in the STEAM field to pick apart their origins in order to further understand the motivations behind their accomplishments and the hopes that they can provide fuel for the next generation of STEAM students. In today's episode, we have the absolute privilege to sit down with Tyler Bates. He is a musician, producer, and composer for film, television, video games, And you might have even heard his work in the 300, the John Wick movies, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Deadpool 2, just to name a few. In addition, he's the former lead guitarist for Marilyn Manson and produced a number of his albums as well. You might have also heard him play the Star Spangled Banner on the guitar at the Tennessee Titans football game. Tyler's seemingly endless list of credits typically revolve around horror and action and have made their ways into a plethora of media, including a Disneyland attraction, which we'll touch on a bit later. He's a perfect guest for today because he brings the best of the Steam worlds together, engineering, and art. But without further ado, Tyler, thank you so much for being here with us today. My pleasure. Good to see you. Just staring at your background of, of you know, collection of guitars and amps and pedals, I can't help but think of like the beginning. You know, was there ever a defining moment for you where it was like, wow, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to be a composer. It it was slow. Uh, I started off as a sax player. I played alto sax like in my uh, my school uh, jazz band, concert band, marching band. And I really loved it. Um, But I think when, you know, I was a kid, I I had uh, two uh, cousins uh, through a marriage that were were from Detroit, and they were getting in a lot of trouble there in Detroit. And at the time, their their dad and my mother's sister lived with us also. So the their mother sent them to us, you know. And so I was impressionable, of course. I was like ten years old, and you know they they were like the bad girls who smoked and went to concerts and mm-hmm. got in trouble and stuff. So they turned me on to some bands like Kiss and whatever. And I'm like, God, I got to play guitar because that's cool. Cause these girls love it. And you know, they love guitar. I should play guitar, but I always loved music because my mother was an absolute music aficionado and she had an incredible stereo system, like two racks worth of power amps and, and EQs and every medium you could uh, have at your disposal to, to play music. And so there was always music happening and I would go to the record store with her every Tuesday because back then new music was released on Tuesdays and um, you didn't have all the online resources to find out about what was what. So we would ask the clerks, what's new, what's good, you know, because they would listen to whatever came in. And that's how I discovered a lot of music. Um, So my mother was an enthusiast about it. My father was the opposite. He, he, he told me uh, quite often that I would be a loser and, and, and never get anywhere uh, in life playing music. So that made me want to do it more. Um, my parents literally used to argue about it, like not even casually. It would be knockdown, drag out arguments about me playing and my dad telling me to turn it off. And so that was a thing. And I guess back when I was in the concert band, I was really good on sax. And for whatever reason, uh, Mr. Cooper never in jazz band would uh, elevate me to first chair. And it really pissed me off. 
So um, I guess some of that went into playing guitar, but I, even though I did have, you know, jobs throughout school and then one right after high school, uh, I had a very serious job. I never made a choice not to be music first. And that was always going to be my life. Um, I did manage a trading firm in the board of options exchange in Chicago when I was 19. So I was the youngest person to ever do that. Um, so I was also trading stocks and options, uh, but it was more of a survival, uh, a survival job. You know, I had had some tragedy in my family and I needed to survive at the time. So uh, thankfully I worked with uh, a group of people that provided tremendous um, parental guidance for me and educated me in a way that I don't believe I could have been educated elsewhere. Wow. So you kind of described the slow transition into the music industry. Like what was it like trying to break into such a competitive and fast paced and exclusive um, field? It's, it's interesting, you know, um, I'm from, from Los Angeles originally, and then at some point when I was a kid, we moved uh, to Chicago, and I hung out there for, for a while and moved back here um, in 1993. So when I was in Chicago, I, I always had bands, and we were the top local band in Chicago. So that part was great. Like, I was just planning on being a rock star guitar player. It was so fun back then, actually, more than any time uh, where I would pull up to a club on a Saturday night to go play my gig and it's like 1130 at night and there's a line around the block and it's really hard to even get to the dressing room and it was really fun. Um, but I knew that that was not really enough for me. I, I wanted to, you know, go for it for real. And um, I knew that I wanted to come back to Los Angeles. So that is ultimately what I did. But when I moved to LA, I came back to write songs with people and produce artists. And that somehow turned into a record deal uh, in a band I had called Pet. And we signed to Atlantic Records and that had its whole life. But um, in the meantime, I was meeting people at barbecues and wherever, and they were filmmakers. And I had never met filmmakers before. I mean, in Chicago, I never met any. so you know, they, they would be doing small films and they asked if I would do the music. And I was honest and said, I've never done this before, or I've done very little of this. And they're like, that's okay. You can't really screw it up. You know, I mean, there was, there was not much money to speak of, but it was all very good experience. And um, I had done 35 movies or something like that um, before, um, before, well, I did 18 before I ever met another person who scored a movie, right? So I'm completely just learning from directors, editors, producers who don't do music. So that's how I, I started my education with film scoring. So the, the, the films were not great quality. So one would think, okay, well, that's the way to go. It's like if you buy your, your kid an instrument, you know, you think, well, let's get them something cheap to see if they really want to play. It's like, I'm not suggesting you get the Rolls Royce to begin with, but if they're playing on something that doesn't, you know, it doesn't play well, the results are not going to be good and they may lose interest. And same with movies. It's much more difficult to write good music in a bad movie. Um, so I wrote a lot of terrible scores. And I also didn't know that I should just be myself. 
you know, whatever version of me is the person creating the music for the movie um, is where I really should have started and I would have grown um, and matured, I think, in a more even way. But um, I had a few box office bombs and I, each of those I thought were going to be my big break. Like Get Carter with Sylvester Stallone it was a beautiful movie, but it performed really poorly at the box office. And uh, then I had this other movie with a ton of big actors in it called What's the Worst That Could Happen? And probably that film title is uh, self-explanatory. <laughs> but somehow I, I was doing this little movie. Uh, Mario Van Peebles wrote and directed it. And it was a story about his father. And this music supervisor is this guy named G. Mark Roswell, who I'm still friends with. And he's since not, you know, he's retired from, from the business. But he kept telling me, he says, you know, I'm doing Dawn of the Dead and I really think you can do it. And I thought, well, I don't have the experience with large orchestras and I'm sure you're meeting with everybody who's ever scored big horror films in, in Hollywood because it was a universal movie and, and uh, I just thought there's no way I could get the job. So what I did was uh, he, asked, he said, you know, while you have time, we we're still working on the other movie. He did the Mario Van Peebles movie. He said, write a couple pieces of music and he slipped me the script. And so I did. And I'm, and I put those two pieces of music on a CD with about 20 tracks that are really like avant-garde uh, classical music that I thought would be really great reference points for the score for Dawn of the Dead. Um, so I actually had this meeting with uh, the director, Zack Snyder, eventually. And I said, you know, I imagine something kind of like Penderecki, which now Penderecki is a very common um, influence or inspiration on horror films. But at the time, Penderecki had not become uh, as common uh, a reference. So anyway, I said, you know, I would use like Penderecki's music, like this type of piece of music as the basis for the score. And then we can add the themes and the color throughout. And he's like, what's a Penderecki? And then right then, the producer, Eric Newman, son of Randy Newman, walks in with the CD. He says, Penderecki, he says, that's what I have in my hand. He says, that's what my dad said he would use to score this movie if he was doing Dawn of the Dead. I thought, okay, that's a good sign, I think. <laughs> so I played, played that track to Zach, and I said, I'm playing you this because I don't personally have experience with the orchestra this large. I said, however, I've produced music my whole life. I'm very confident that I could, I could de definitely execute this well. And he said, cool. So he listened to it, and he's like, oh, my God, that's disturbing. And I'm like, well, yeah. I said, if, if we can't scare people, at least we can make them uneasy, right? Anyway, I heard later they were hiring someone else. Um, I even went and saw some other movie like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like that um, and saw the Dawn of the Dead trailer and I was really bummed. I'm like, God, I was so close to catching my break, you know, and then so that did that didn't happen. Um, the funny thing is I did end up doing a movie for the director did the Texas Chainsaw Massacre reboot. Um, but then five weeks later, I get a phone call from G. Mark Roswell and he said, hey, they put a pin in hiring a composer and every time music comes up, the director keeps mentioning your name. I said, so they want to see you again for another interview and, and the executive producer wants to talk to you. So I met with them and I said, I said, look to the executive producer. I said, I will not screw this up. If you give me an opportunity, I said, I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And he said, let me ask you this. He said, 
you gave out a CD to Zach when you, uh, when you took that meeting. I said, yeah. He says, I have that CD. He said, what's the first track on that? And I said, oh, well, that's something that, uh, that G-Mark suggested I write, you know, inspired by reading the script. He said, well, I'll tell you what. He says, I played that in my car and my kids, when they've heard it, were scared to death. And now they want to hear it all the time because it's the scariest music that they've ever heard. <laughs> and he says, I'll tell you what, let me make a few calls. We're going to do this together. So that was kind of cool, you know, and I, and the funny thing is, is so we're talking 2003 and I had just done this movie also called You Got Served, which was a dance movie. Both movies came out the first quarter of 2004. Both were number one movies. And my next job interview was not for five months and I couldn't get arrested. So that's when I had time to start developing, um, 300 with Zack Snyder, which we worked on that for at least a year or so before Warner Brothers decided to move forward with the movie. So um, things just don't go as they appear. You know, you don't just go to school nowadays and get a film scoring degree, which they, I don't even know if they had that back then. Uh, they, they will offer that anywhere these days. Um, you just have to persevere and you you have to be the type of person who cannot visualize a life not doing what you love. Um, there just can't be a backup plan. Otherwise, it's just far too difficult to fathom making it because you'll use the backup plan. This, this business will break you down. It will break your soul. And you've got to find a way to stay committed to what you love and to continue to be engaged with that thing that got you so excited about what you are doing anyway from the very beginning so um, there's my tangential answer to whatever you ask me not to worry we welcome tangents on this podcast tyler you speak in music but how do you work with people who don't speak that same language of music or you know they're not as musically oriented as you are how do you go about describing a scene to someone who might not have the same understanding of music that you do well, that's, that's interesting, but music is embedded in every part of our experience, whether we're aware of it or not. Um, obviously, if you're on social media, it's, there's just music everywhere there. If you're watching TV, whether it's sports or, or TV shows, there's music. And you may not understand what a, you know, a G major seventh chord is, but you know, there's a certain feeling or emotion that it may elicit. And it's my job to understand what that is so that I can tap in in a conversation to say a producer who is a little intimidated talking about music. Because even if I'm working with somebody who's experienced, maybe they've done three movies, maybe they've done three TV series or five, you know, whereas through my experience, I've done a hundred, you know, or more plus a million other things. And I'm not saying I've done them all well, but I've done them. And my job as a, is, is a composer is to understand the storyteller because this whole gig is storytelling and emotion. And if I don't get the correct information, which only comes from understanding the storyteller and what it is thereafter, I'm not going to create an appropriate score. Even if it's good music, it could totally not work for the film. And with producers, sometimes they are uncomfortable talking about music for the very reason you, you brought up uh, that they don't know musical terminology. And so oftentimes if I'm having a meeting in my studio, which 
uh, with COVID, this may change forever. We may be doing this via Zoom, but I'll be prepared to do this as well. Where we're having a conversation, I may iterate to them in the form of music spontaneously on the spot, something that suggests that I hear them. I hear what you just said, that's a good idea. You mean something like this. And I may then take you know a minute to create a little impression of a piece of music that would, would hopefully uh, embody the, the idea or the feeling or the, the emotion or, or the objective that they have in mind. And once that happens, they get really excited because now they're part of the process. And this filmmaking, TV, video game, it's all a team, uh, team sport. There, there is no I, you know, I mean, if you're really honest about it, movies are going through a series of litmus tests, whether they're internal between the director, the editor, the producers, or when they test a movie, especially action movies are being tested all the time. So with that comes information that, you know, obviously trickles down to the composer, you know, and if there's a hole in the story or maybe a weak acting performance somewhere or they don't have coverage of something they ask music to sort of compensate for what doesn't exist so you you have to constantly be at the ready to service that aspect of filmmaking as well and just understand everyone's just trying to make the best thing possible they're not trying to destroy your life usually um there <laughs> there is that too but really most people just want to make the best thing they can make the best entertainment they can make so that the audience will really really love it and and as long as you know that then you've got to be strong uh with your filmmakers you got to know that every single experience is at least one triathlon that you're gonna you're gonna partake in and you can't show a sign of weakness or that you're tired you can always ask questions you can always look to you know seek out more information but when it comes to your ability, your attitude, your physical energy, you've always got to be ready to go and let them know that they can lean on you as hard as they need to, because that's just sort of like an unwritten rule that you need to abide by, I think, if you're going to be a great collaborator. For you, when you're approaching scoring and like music, like for a film, how do you really get in touch with the characters? How do you get in touch with the storyline to create a cohesive narrative um, instrumentally. Right. So the story in itself is, let's say that's a hugely important um, aspect of that decision-making process. But once I know what the film looks like, how it's shot, how the actors, like the very specific actors play the character roles, um, that definitely informs me as well, because the voice functions to me as another instrument in the music. Um, so I need to write music that's going to not compete with the voice, but um, really support that voice and, and enhance it wherever um, the opportunity arises to do so. Uh, some movies I know, or TV shows, are going to be a little bit more discordant, and, and it might be a bit more... Um, dark and noisy and nightmarish and that's fun i love that type of music i love making sounds um so a lot of the atmospheric sounds in my projects are, are handmade and then 
you know, working with an orchestra, we usually know in advance, um, like for instance, say uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. We knew that was gonna be primarily an orchestral score. Uh, and after discussing it with the director, you know, I really wanted to take more of a throwback approach to old school movies where the themes were really broad and, and very recognizable because in the late 90s, all the way through the, the first decade of the 2000s, a lot of filmmaking was hyper real. So there were not themes. The directors really didn't want melodic scores. They wanted more of uh, an extension of your, your, your mindset as far as what psychological state you're in, you know? So each project is different. Uh, I'm starting a new one um, very soon that is a horror movie, but it's very much an avant-garde approach to the music and it will involve, you know, human voices and, and some other uh, organic elements that will probably, you know, wind up, uh, you know, I guess it ultimately will probably be a little bit disorienting and um, disturbing, but I'm excited about that because the director is someone I've worked with before and he's fantastic. So um, every single one of these projects is a learning experience. That's something to remember. You just never ever stop learning. If you do, you stop growing. And um, there's, you know, you, you have to have the humility to, to not only accept that, but to desire that in your life. Every artist I work with, I learn something new from them, whether they're a good artist or they're crap. You know, you learn no matter what the endeavor. So I think that's what keeps my fire going. You know, I'm always excited. I'm 55 and I wake up excited. I feel like I'm 20. You know, I just really, really love to get into it and see what's going to happen today because there's never a day that happens in my life where something has not come into existence or create been created or there is uh you know there's almost always a story of sharing with someone you know some artist that i'm working with whether it's a director or it's a recording artist something that's developed that gets us both excited or sometimes that doesn't work and we're faced with the challenge of how do we how do we circle back around to make this idea work um that challenge is, is intense and it can be very stressful if you think that uh, your success or failure on that given uh, task is, is directly tied to your employment. Um, but nonetheless, uh, my job as a composer on films, I would say is the most difficult job there is in the business. And I've been told that by many of my colleagues who work in the business, especially re-recording mixers. And those are the the mix engineers that mix all the elements of a movie together at the very end. So all the dialogue, all the sound effects, all the music, all of the Foley, like the footsteps and the sound of cloth and things of that nature, you know, they put the, the whole thing together. So they see the dynamics of films play out and they see the pressure that is constantly placed on the composer to deliver, uh, the emotion and to fix parts of the film that may require a little suspension of disbelief. Um, and we do it oftentimes with very little time and fewer resources than you would imagine. You know, sometimes you see the poster in the billing block and you're like, wow, that movie, you know, that 
everybody's rich who were not works on that movie. <laughs> it's like, it doesn't work that way. I've, you know, I've taken out second mortgages on my house to complete some of the biggest scores that have happened over the past decade. So um, you do whatever it takes. Yeah. We all, and, and it's not just me. I mean, if, if you've seen a composer's name 15 times, you know, they've been through a lot. If you've seen it 50 times, you know, they've really been through a lot and there's a lot of risk. There's a lot of challenge in your personal life to try and hold your whole situation together there, especially with the family and, and, and all that. So we are a different breed, I think, of people. It's not just, oh, I love to put music to images. And that's, you know, amazing. That's what I want to do. It's a hell of a lot more than that. Mm. Yeah, no, I love that quote. Um, when you stop learning, you stop growing. And I can't help but think about the technology that's also grown with your work. How do you think the evolution of tech has helped you transform or alter your sound um, and better deliver it to an audience? Oh, it's incredible what I can do now. Like I mentioned that I, I create a lot of my own sounds. Well, back in the, back in the day, um, you know, when I first started, we used to, to reference the video because you write music to the picture, right? So we used to reference the, the video on a VHS tape. And in order to get whatever sequencer or, or digital workstation that you're working on, and even then it wasn't really a digital workstation, it was only MIDI, um, you had to have a, a SMPTE time code burnt into the VHS tape. And that's like this most horrific sound if you listen to it, but it's, it, it's a numerical code that would tell other machines where it is so it could follow, right? Or it could drive them. And to get all that stuff to work and to lock up, like literally every time you hit play was so exhausting. And then say, for instance, the, the samplers that would play back sound, the their capacity was so limited and the quality of sounds was so minimalist that you're reliant upon synthesizers. And if, and if what they were asking for in a lower budget film, which is where I started um, for uh, somewhat of an orchestral score, you know, maybe I could have my friend come in and play trumpet and double on flugelhorn and something else, but I'm using a lot of crappy samples and, you know, and it, I also was thrust into synthesizers at a time when I was, you know, primarily focused on guitars um, in my life. So there was a learning curve there. But what was really fantastic in the, the mid 90s, uh, Pro Tools really came into its own, I would say by the end of the decade. So by 2000, it made it so we could host a digital version of the movie within our computer so there was no sync time that was a big problem took a while for mac computers to become as awesome as they are they used to crash all the time and that would be a problem but now um data management is easier you know the way you can store things you know uh, i remember spending like i don't know almost a thousand dollars like on a four gig hard drive or something at one point in my life you know and you can get flash drives at CVS for nothing, you know, that, you know, hundred times that. So it's really, that has definitely taken a lot of the, the laborious time that really didn't uh, necessarily uh, factor into the musical product in the end. Um, it took that out of the equation. 
And I came in in an in-between time, you know, because the big composers were using orchestras. So they didn't have to make great sounding demos. You know, a lot of the times they wouldn't. They would just sit at the piano and play the score to the, the director and say, okay, so the French horn does this and they would play that and so on and so forth. And there was a lot more trust because there had to be in composers just to, to create a, an incredible score. Um, once everything became digital, including editing, everybody involved in the business, you know, creatively realized they could put their hand into the process, whether it's editing, sound effects, or music. So with the advent of this technology, which gave me greater capacity to write more complex music, especially non-orchestral music, or even orchestral music, because the samples that I now have access to are all live recorded instruments. They sound fantastic. So it doesn't necessarily sound as good or have the soul that a live orchestra will have when it performs the music, but it's a pretty darn good uh, tool to mock up something that will allow me to present to directors and producers without asking them to suspend their disbelief in what the music will sound like. So technology has really made it much greater for me uh, to articulate more exacting what I what I'm intending on delivering to the movie and then of course there's a whole discussion that comes with that because then the director and producers they since they do have a more concise idea they have more concise comments and so as you've learned in your life already with the advent of every new OS or any new aspect of technology there are greater um, possibilities and greater capacities to expand on what you already know, but it also allows for more people to be involved in your process. So, um, it, it, you know, there's always, a, a, there's always some slight detractor that comes along with any forward progression. So, and I'm not suggesting that they're, you know, my collaborators being involved in this is, is really a negative thing. It's just, it causes for more changes to occur. And so we oftentimes as composers will get new reels of a movie on a Friday night and they want a million changes to the music because the pictures changed and maybe some test data came in. They're like, oh, well, we don't want to play the scene humorously. We want to play this really tense and let the humor just be funny. It's like, okay. Um, so can you have all those changes for us for Monday morning so we can get it into the new cut because we're testing again Monday night. Have a nice weekend. You know, so you work around the clock to make it happen. And that part of it is really frustrating sometimes, especially when you're uh, like me, I'm a dad. And so I've missed a lot of things in my life with my kids. I've been there for a lot of things too um, because my studios are my home. I have uh, two other associates who work here and um and so you know they can help cover for a couple hours here or there if i need to make some time funny thing is they did not grow up in the same era as me so they never knew what it was like to sync up a vhs tape or do they know what simty code really is so luckily for them they got in at a, at a really great time technologically so it's a lot of fun it is it sounds like there's a lot of technology and engineering involved, which honestly, I think a lot of people don't really take the time to appreciate. There's just a lot of like looking at the finished product 
and being like, oh, wow, that like really adds a lot to a scene, but they don't really understand like the, like, you know, the heart, the years, like long work that you had to put in to create that. How do you think like engineering and technology plays into like the arts and vice versa? I mean, conceptually, you have an idea that you're aspiring to, but you know that in order to get to, uh, to the finish line for this idea to come to fruition, that it's going to go through many permutations. Um, so there are parallels between them. Like for instance, with music, you can write a piece of music using your keyboard and amazing orchestral sounds and play that music to someone and they'll be like, wow, that's really great. But for that music to come to life and be in a film, not only do you need to understand the tasks of other people working in a movie to appropriately interface with them, but you've, you have to produce this music. That means you have to prepare, it needs to be orchestrated. Once it's approved, it needs to be orchestrated so that an orchestra will actually have music on the stand to play. They need to read it. So every instrument has to have a part that's created from this music. And then once you, you get to a studio and you record, you have to, uh, work with the orchestra to get them to execute and express the music as exacting as, as you have it in your mind. And then once you get that back, you have to edit it so that it really is syncing with the picture beautifully. And then you have to mix that music so that it sounds great and it works dynamically with the film. So obviously you don't want music to be mixed, to, uh, to be uh, blasting loud instead of quiet under dialogue where that may be more appropriate, right? So even though it's not as simple as just turning the volume down, it's a matter of all along you want to write the music so it's intended to be quiet, but you also have to place it into the movie so that you know that it's working as intended. So there's so many factors that go into that, um, that you have to have a very critical thinking mind always, because you're making decisions about how to yield the best result always and still satisfy the director and the producers and give the movie what it needs. And then also understand exactly how the people on the dubbing stage where the mix is put together at the end, how they need to receive the music in what format so that we're gonna give them the greatest uh, uh, capacity to mix the music into the film uh, at, its, at its most potent. Um, Engineering, you know, I think is also a matter of learning and, and, you know, you need to obviously develop a foundation of understanding of what it is that you're doing. I mean, there's obviously many, many different uh, fields of engineering. Let's say you're, you know, I don't know, you're de designing automobiles or something. You know, there are fundamentals, I'm sure, that, uh, that are at play with every objective. But you also have to dream, much like a scientist has to dream of what's possible, or else they won't find, you know, new medicines. They won't develop vaccines that we need, you know. There has to be the capacity to think beyond what already exists. How do we get there? And there needs to be a fundamental understanding of what, what that world is that you're living in. Those tenets of, of your 
your profession are going to be applicable to the dreams that you have, the creative, the creative mind that you have. You know, scientists are, you know, obviously they disprove every theory that they can conjure up. And, and the more they disprove, the more they, they believe in, in their hypotheses or their data. And I think having that type of critical mind still comes from consistently expanding your mind. I know that's a very tangential answer, but I think it's a very complex question if you really think long and hard about it, because you especially are facing the greatest challenges to survive in a world that is balanced and that's healthy for people. And unfortunately, you've been tasked with it because a lot of people before you were not thinking too far beyond their own themselves. So um, there is going to be out of necessity, some just absolutely incredible things that happen now that because we're so desperate for the invention of new ideas, we're going to accept them. We're not going to think that people are absolutely crazy out of their mind. You know, we're, 25 years ago, 30 years ago, just imagine like, if you can, if you can think of this, what if someone from 1955 all of a sudden came right out of a, a time capsule and sat down and watched an NFL football game, watched the way we're advertised to the way we see things now, they would think that is like thousands of years in the future of, you know, where people are just totally crazy and everything is so different, they can hardly even recognize what, what it is. But now, because of, uh, because of the era we're in, where time is becoming an uh, exponentially diminishing factor as we jettison towards singularity, <laughs> and now we're going off on another tangent, um, I think it becomes very, very interesting if you're in the field of science, you know, right now has to be just absolutely, just incredibly exciting. As frightening as it is, it's got to be the most exciting era ever, I would think. Speaking of incredibly exciting, uh, you worked or you wrote the music for a Disneyland attraction, Guardians of the Galaxy Mission Breakout, which I'm sure was absolutely insane. Um, you know, you, I'm sure you got to work with, with Imagineers, who I think are the perfect embodiment of science and art. Um, but what was that experience like? It was one of the best experiences I've had. Um, first off, the people at Disney Imagineering are wonderful. They do dream. I mean, I know that they have a lot of corporate uh, stuff that, you know, they have to, to deal with on a daily basis. But they really do dream they really think about what would be an awesome experience for people, including themselves. So it's not like, so for instance, that, that mission breakout was, uh, what was it used to be the, the tower of terror, right? They converted that attraction into our thing and everybody working on that thing, they'd ride that, you know, after midnight because we could only have meetings after midnight because Disneyland's open till midnight. So we couldn't, gain access to it for the longest time until after midnight. So uh, one of my associates here, uh, she and I would roll down there for these midnight meetings, ride the, the ride three, four, five times, you know, try and not puke afterwards. And, and then you talk about it 
you know, after each ride, you talk about what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we can do to make it better. Um, but always with a great deal of support. And I notice, you know, in video games, it's a very similar environment where it's, it's very supportive. It's like you're a team of developers. It's not like, Oh, if you don't nail this, you're out. You know what I mean? It's like, it's a team of developers and everyone is supportive of one another's success. And I think that that's why video games are so huge. I think that's why those Disney attractions do so well, because that love, that passion is entirely transcendent to the people experiencing the ride or the game. You know, they feel that it was made by people who love it. And there's that authenticity that, uh, that makes it really cool. Fun thing about that is that um, there's a Halloween version of that ride. And I was very surprised when the director said, you know, I want like a thrash metal song that you, you write. And it's gonna play from September through Halloween. I'm like, really? And he said, yeah. He says, just make it heavy and wild. And he says, I just want there to be a lyric in it that just says monsters after dark as many times as possible. And um, I'm like, okay then. So yeah, I made this track. Um, and then I ended up just singing it because there was no time. I just had to do it. So that became really popular too. So it's kind of funny to, to do that. You can even, you know, that track, you can buy it on iTunes, I think. Um, it's, it's just neat to do something like that where it was unexpected and it's like, oh, cool, we're doing this auxiliary version of the ride, which was already fun. But I really felt like that was a chance for it to be mine, you know? I mean, I, I love the other stuff is all based on Guardians of the Galaxy and that's cool. But this was my track and it was a direct result of that collaboration with Joe Rohde, who was the director of that ride. And uh, John Dennis, uh, who was one of the producers of, of that attraction, as well as many of the Disney attractions around the world. But um, yeah, those are good people. Like, and when you're working with good people, you feel like your life is, is in a good spot. You're, you're putting your time somewhere where it really matters. Because as young as you are right now, it won't take long for you to realize how fleeting time is and how that is the most valuable thing any of us have. And I'm not talking, you know, in, in, in some morose kind of way, you know, I mean, who knows, you can live to be a hundred, but you, you might not. So um, who you spend your time with, what you do with your time, that's something to keep in the front of your mind throughout your life. Uh, the people that are your friends, the people you may choose to have a family with. I mean, those type things are so, so important. You know, you really need to think long and hard about what that is. And if you do for yourself, then you'll probably be more successful in the partners you choose to engage in business with and relationships with and marriage with, if that's what you choose to do, all of that. So, um, you know, life isn't compartmentalized anymore. It used to be, yeah, I leave my work at work, but everybody's on social media. I don't go on it really. Um, it's, it's a den of horrors to me. There's just, you know, if I were to read up on myself, I'm sure there's just a bunch of people talking a bunch of things that I don't really care to read. But, you know, um, what we do now 
is always spilling over into after hours. And we just really have to, to think about what it is that we're, we're doing with our, our lives and who we do it with. And I think if you do that, you will have a pretty good shot at, at having a decent uh, experience here. Kind of touching on what you said about social media, there's a lot of cliches and stereotypes that are able to cycle on someone's feed. What are some cliches about the music industries that are very commonly stated, but you disagree with? Well, there, there are a couple things. Um, when I first started out uh, in my rock bands, I can't tell you how many times I heard, you'll never make it. It's one in a million. So I think if you want to pursue a life where there is no precise handbook as to how to go about it, regardless of how incredible it is to become a surgeon, and that's a ginormous undertaking to become one, there's still steps that in school they can show you. But you go to school to become a film composer, they can teach you about John Williams music or whatever, but they're not going to teach you how to establish yourself in the business because the people teaching you aren't established in the business, you know? So you need to take steps for yourself to take that one in a million and start making efforts that reduce those odds to one in 800,000, one in 500,000, one in 250,000. And you can do this by continuing to work really hard at every aspect of your craft. So for every note of music you write, learn something about another technical task in the business, editing, directing, writing, producing, cinematography. The more you understand those processes, though, they'll inform your work as a composer. And then the thing that I, the cliche that really bothers me the most is rock is dead. Because what's being promoted on radio in the top 10 or 20 is a whole different deal. Now I've heard rock is dead for a long time and I've played in front of 80,000 people, you know, at one time. So, you know, many times I've played for a lot of people, 20, 50, however many thousand people and they're rabid fans. So that's not true. And um, I think we need, we need a healthy rock music for some people to just have a, a, a non-destructive way of kind of letting out their angst and also enjoying, you know, exalting their, their joy for being alive and for being with their friends. And, you know, I think, uh, I think that's one thing I'm, I'm hell bent on uh, helping bring uh rock music back to more of the mainstream radio and to the Grammys presented on TV one day. Um, but you know, I enjoy, I enjoy working in it. I don't get to, I don't get uh, discouraged. You know, I have, have a song right now in the top 20 with an artist. So I'm excited about that. Um, again, I think everything that is great is valid and everything that, that isn't, you know, sometimes that, eeks through too. I try not to allow that to dampen my spirit. Um, I just always believe in, in what's possible. Who do you consider to be your compositional muses or inspirations that maybe the audience can go out and listen to and, and help revive rock as well? <laughs> well, for sure. Rock music, Black Sabbath, man. Great band. 
early Van Halen music really was was cool. Queensryche was a band that I really liked. They're from Seattle. Um, uh, but I also love the, you know, I grew up listening to Sly and the Family Stone, Stevie Wonder, um, uh, jazz, you know, like John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk. I mean, that that really opened my mind because there's so much tonal information and so many, I mean, there's just there's so much virtuosity in that music that... Um, that I at least began to absorb the concept of what the, the difference between virtuosity and, and, you know, self-flagellation on your instrument happens to be. There is a huge difference. Um, classical music, you know, I have a tendency to really like, I do like some of the, you know, contemporary music that is more discordant, but even if you listen to Ligeti, it's not all, uh, all of that, you know, dark smoke of music. It, there's there's some great uh, choral works that that he did that I was really inspired by. And then film composers, you know, I really loved Don Ellis's scores for the French Connection movies back in the early '70s. And um, the director that that directed those movies is named William Friedkin. So he did The Exorcist and a number of movies that are considered you know, uh, American cinematic classics. And I, uh, I worked with him on a film and he told me the backstory to a lot of his films, which was really interesting. And he saw Don Ellis performing at a club here in town at Largo. And he just asked him if he would score his movie. That was it. It was his first movie. He'd never done it before. So I thought that was cool. It was a much more, uh, much cooler way to get into the business than how I was asked, like at a barbecue or something. But um, it would have been cooler had I just performed and someone asked me, oh my God, you've got to score my movie, please. But um, anyway, it was, uh, it, he, I thought he was great. Obviously, I love Bernard Herrmann, Maurice Jarre, all those epic films from back in the day, like the biblical movies and stuff, great. And then, uh, you know, contemporary, I just love Tom Newman's work. I think he's, I think Thomas Newman's a genius and um, a very soulful artist, which that's, uh, his work is connected with me forever because of that. So, yeah, I mean, there's too many to name. Yeah, I mean, as we wrap up, we always like to ask our um, interviewees if they have any advice to our primarily you know, youthful audience um, as they want to like follow in your footsteps and kind of look up to you. So what would be your advice? Hmm. You know, following in my footsteps is dangerous because I don't believe in having a backup plan. Okay. I certainly believe in equipping yourself with the information and the culture that's required to succeed at what you love to do. But Again, I think if you have a backup plan, and I'm not saying you don't start in one spot and evolve, because I have. Like what my career is today is looks nothing like what I had set out to do. But I've always had an open mind. But I think you have to, if you can imagine another life than one you're entertaining as far as a career, then just go do it because it's too difficult to make it knowing that you have an escape route. Um, but it's up to us to, to 
keep our fire, the thing that we love, because the more you have success, the more you will be torn down, the more people will gun for you, the more people will come after you with lawyers, the more people will talk terrible things about you because you're their competition. And it, you don't think that when you're in the arts, you think, oh, I'm in the arts, you know, it's not like, you know, Wall Street or something. No, it is, unfortunately. But I don't allow any of that stuff to ever, you know, dampen my own spirit. Um, it's up to me to keep that in check. It's up to me to continue to uh, digest inspiring works that make me want to be better. You know, I'm going to go until I drop dead. Like I'm always going to write my best piece of music. I haven't written my best music yet. Um, that's how I feel. And it keeps me excited for what the possibility of, of every day is. And sometimes we go through slumps, right? You know, not everything's full blast. It's not everything's like, oh, wow, you made it. You know, people say, they ask me what it's like to make it. And I was like, I haven't made it. You kidding? I'm just starting. I, I would never know what that feels like because I'm not complacent enough or trusting enough to just accept that. I have to continue to prove myself. And the more I stay in that mindset, the more I feel alive. And I think that that's what you want to do in your life. Money will always come and go in a person's life. It's not something to base. It's not the, like the metric to base your objective on. Maybe there's the love of how you're going to acquire it, whether you're trading stocks and options or you're building a business or whatever. That's a different story. But you really have to be excited by the challenge and by change and to embrace change and not complain that things aren't what they used to be because they're never going to be what they used to be. My business will not be what it was March as it was March 10th of this year. It's never going to be exactly that again. So I can either be upset about that or I can be curious enough to see how it's going to evolve because everything's different now and our life will be different. And some with that is going to be some great things, some beautiful things that, that come into our existence that did not exist before the necessity to create whatever it is that uh, is coming and has already developed uh, as a result of this global pandemic. So I really think it's important to learn. It's important to embrace change. And it's up to us to remain passionate about everything in our life. No one else is going to do it for us. And you're going to get knocked off your horse a ton. You just have to get right back on. And you got to suck it up and just go after it. And know that your relationship with the thing that you love is more powerful than any extraneous force that may try to disrupt that. So mental fortitude is important, you know, but the more you're, you're engaged in what you love to do, the stronger you'll be. Thank you so much for being here with us today, Tyler, and sharing your insights. We'll continue to embrace change. Um, and you can check out Tyler on his website at tylerbates.com and be sure to keep an eye out for DC Comics, Dark Knight's death metal soundtrack that he's uh, helping make. Um, yeah, to Echo Cosmo, thank you so much for being here. It really means a lot to us that you took the time to come and share your story and inspire others. And a special thank you to our audience for tuning in. We greatly appreciate it. And we hope to see you next time on the Full Steam Head Podcast.
Be sure to follow the Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram for the latest info on upcoming guests, as well as Q&A opportunities, where we take questions directly from our followers and pose them to our guests. At Full Steam Ahead podcast on Instagram.